Tonight is Motivation Monday, and we're going to stay on motivation. One of the things I learned over the weekend, I always learn a lesson I try to bring back to other people. Um, But if you're with us tonight for the first time, this is Monday Motivation, and I am Shantae Charles, your host, and this is Daring Dialogues. Um, One of the things I learned over the weekend is business and launching. So one of the things I want to encourage people who are launching businesses about is make sure that if you're launching a business that you make that clear to the people that you're launching to. Um, If you're launching a business, make sure that that is what you communicate to the people around you. Um, You will get more of a positive response by just telling people what you're planning to do, what you're launching, and how you'd like them to make an investment in your business than pretending that you're not doing a business launch and that you're calling and you call it something else. That comes across as dishonest. It comes across as deceptive and it makes people not trust you in business, especially if you're launching one and that's not what you tell people you're doing. So brand new business owners, if you're launching a business, just be upfront. Be honest about what you're doing. Let your family and friends know. Let them know how they can invest in you. And then give them the option of investing. That's it. Just a little tip to help some people out. I won't go into what happened to me this weekend. But that's a tip. (laughs) Because one sure way to guarantee that people don't want to invest in you is if they feel tricked into investing. Okay. All right. Just trying to help somebody out. I have here a devotional book entitled Black Pearls. Daily Meditations, Affirmations, and Inspirations for African Americans. I don't know how I stumbled along uh, upon this. I think I was just in the bookstore and it was just sitting on the shelf and I was like, hmm, Black Pearls. Let's see what we have here. And I started opening it up and I started reading. And I was like, man, this is some good inspiration. So I want to share a couple of these. Since we are uh, starting off the week, let me go to February 7th and February 8th. February 7th was based on stereotypes. Faye Waddleton said, one of the sad commentaries on the way women are viewed in our society is that we have to fit one category. I have never felt that I had to be in one category. Me either. Categories can never reflect who we really are. We make a serious mistake when we attempt to define a person by one aspect of his or her being. Labels such as Republican, Democrat, feminist, recovering alcoholic, husband, mother, lawyer, Catholic, welfare recipient can become loaded with fallacious implications about our values, worth, or motivations. Let's acknowledge that the soul and humanity of an individual are not to be captured and defined in a label or category. On this day, I will reflect upon one of the following. A woman I know, a man I know, a person of the same race or religion whom I know, a person of a different race or religion whom I know. Then I will take five minutes to note qualities that are unique to him or her 
or different from the stereotypical image of that kind of person. I love it. I think we should all have moments of reflection. Um, This weekend, I was doing a lot of reflecting on iconic singers. So if you were looking at my pages over the weekend, or you were looking at Black Table Talk, or you were looking at um, historical African-American images, you probably saw some of the videos that I was putting up. And I was reflecting on their iconic influence. I was reflecting on the fact that there will not ever be another Whitney Houston. Like, never. Like, you go back and look at her videos, look at her performance, look at her presence, her stage presence, her voice. People try to imitate Whitney all the time. But there was only one Whitney Houston. Um, Prince. There will never be another Prince. Never, ever, ever. (laughs) I looked at one of his videos where he was just sitting there with a guitar and a stool. That was it. And his presence was just emanating. Yeah. It's very interesting if you go back and watch some of these videos of like iconic African-American singers, performers, musicians. He sat there, he started strumming, I think it was Sweet Thing on the guitar, because he wrote it, even though Shaka Khan sang it. He starts strumming this song, and then he just says, now you all sing. Everybody in the whole audience was singing. Everybody knew the lyrics. Everybody knew the inflections. And he just played and he let them do the singing. And it was a very like organic, intimate moment that he was able to create as a performer. And I thought to myself, man, they were some really unique, skilled, talented people who the world will not ever see another one of. And did we really appreciate what they brought to the world? February 8th's reading is about loneliness. June Jordan said, there was no loneliness in the living room, so it was a good part and maybe the best part of the house. We need people in our lives because we are nourished and enriched by their presence. We need the laughter, the conversation, the debate, and the communion. While some may challenge such a notion, preferring solitude, it may be because they do not wish to involve themselves with the needs and wants of others, or they do not wish to expend the effort. Still, it is possible to feel lonely and surrounded by friends and family. Ultimately, we are all lone souls in the universe, hence our drive to find partnership with God or a higher power. Loneliness can hurt, can make us ache or despair. We need to find ways to quench the longing. When we spend time in the living room of life, our despair is lifted and our emotions are permitted engagement and release. On this day, try to be sensitive to the loneliness of others and to make an effort to reach out to them. Now, if you're like me, if you are an ambivert, ambiverts can be 
you know, in a room with people and we can be okay and we can be good or we can be to ourselves and gaining, you know, rebuilding our energy off of our own solitude. That's what ambers do. They're people who can sort of straddle both fences. There are extroverts that really gain their energy off of being around other people. And a lot of extroverts have been going cray, cray during this pandemic because they, they feed off of the energy of other people. And then there are the introverts who feed off of their isolation away from people. And they're loving the pandemic. They're like, y'all can stay over there until Jesus comes. <laughs> and then there are those of us in the middle, the ambiverts, who can, you know, be in the energy, you know, receive energy from other people, but we also can re, you know, refresh ourselves by being isolated and to ourselves. Um, so that's that. Let's get into some readings tonight. We have been in I've Never Had It Made by Jackie Robinson, his autobiography. And um, we're still in the preface where Jackie is talking. And then we're going to finish up with chapter one, Everything Old is New Again. Stacey Abrams, Our Time is Now. So we'll be doing two readings tonight. Starting with Jackie Robinson. He says, Black people supported me with total loyalty. They supported me morally. They came to sit in a hostile audience in unprecedented numbers to make the turnstiles hum as they never had before at ballparks all over the nation. Money is America's God and business people can dig black power if it coincides with green power. So these fans were more important to the success of Mr. Ricky's noble experiment. Some of the Dodgers who swore they would never play with a black man had a change of mind when they realized I was a good ball player who could be helpful in their earning a few thousand more dollars in World Series money. After the initial resistance to me had been crushed, my teammates started to give me tips on how to improve my game. They hadn't changed because they liked me any better. They had changed because I could help fill their wallets. My fellow Dodgers were not decent out of self-interest alone. There were heartwarming experiences with some teammates. There was Southern-born Pee Wee Reese who turned into a staunch friend, and there were others. Mr. Ricky stands out as the man who inspired me the most. He will always have my admiration and respect. Critics had said, don't you know that your precious Mr. Ricky didn't bring you up out of the black leaves because he loved you? Are you stupid enough not to understand that the Brooklyn Club profited hugely because of what your Mr. Ricky did? Yes, I know that. But I also know what a big gamble he took. A bond developed between us that lasted long after I had left the game. In a way, I feel I was the son he had lost and he was the father I had lost. There was more than just making money at stake in Mr. Ricky's decision. I learned that his family was afraid, that his health was being undermined by the resulting pressures, and that they pleaded with him to abandon the plan. His peers and fellow baseball moguls exerted all kinds of influence to get him to change his mind. Some of the press condemned him as a fool and a demagogue, but he didn't give in. 
In a very real sense, black people helped make the experiment succeed. Many who came to the ballpark had not been baseball fans before I began to play in the big leagues. Suppressed and and repressed for so many years, they needed a victorious black man as a symbol. It would help them believe in themselves, but black support of the first black man in the majors was a complicated matter. The breakthrough created as much danger as it did hope. It was one thing for me out there on the playing field to be able to keep my cool in the face of insults, but it was another for all those black people sitting in the stands to keep them from overreacting when they sensed a racial slur or an unjust decision. They could have blown the whole bit to hell by acting belligerently and touching off a race riot. That would have been all the bigots needed to set back the cause of progress of black men in sports another hundred years. I knew this, Mr. Ricky knew this, but this never happened. I learned from Rachel, who had spent hours in the stands, that clergymen and laymen had held meetings in the black community to spread the word. We all knew about the help of the black press. Mr. Ricky and I owed them a great deal. Let me say that again for the people in the cheap digital seats who didn't hear that part about who Jackie Robinson gave credit to to make sure that his entrance into Major League Baseball was successful. Say it again. I learned from my wife, Rachel, who had spent hours in the stands that clergymen all of y'all who think y'all don't need clergy. That clergymen and laymen had held meetings in the black community to spread the word. We all knew about the help of the black press. Mr. Ricky and I owed them a great deal. The clergymen got together with the saved folk. And they had meetings. You know, meetings like, don't y'all go out there cutting the food. We know the racists are going to be racist. We know the bigots are going to bigot. We know the racists are going to racist. But don't y'all go cutting the fool when you see them being exactly what you already know they're going to be. Children from all races came to the stands. The very young seemed to have no hang-up at all about my being black. They just wanted me to be good to deliver, to win. The inspiration of their innocence is amazing. I don't think I'll ever forget the small, shrill voice of a tiny white kid who in the midst of a racially tense atmosphere during an early game in a Dixie town, Dixie town meaning straight up racist, cried out, attaboy Jackie. It broke the tension and it made me feel I had to succeed. The black and the young were my cheering squads, but also there were people neither black nor young, people of all races and faiths, and in all parts of this country, people who couldn't care less about my race. Rachel was even more important to my success. I know that every successful man is supposed to say that without his wife, he could never have accomplished success. It is gospel in my case. 
Rachel shared those difficult years that led to this moment and helped me through all the days thereafter. She has been strong, loving, gentle, and brave, never afraid to either criticize or comfort me. There I was, the black grandson of a slave, the son of a black sharecropper, part of a historic occasion, a symbolic hero to my people. The air was sparkling, the sunlight was warm, the band struck up the national anthem, the flag billowed in the wind. It should have been a glorious moment for me as the stirring words of the national anthem poured from the stands. Perhaps it was, but then again, perhaps the anthem could be called the theme song for a drama called The Noble Experiment. Today, as I look back on that opening game of my first World Series, I must tell you that it was Mr. Ricky's drama and that I was only a principal actor. As I write this 20 years later, I cannot stand and sing the anthem. I cannot salute the flag. I cannot, I know that I am a black man in a white world. In 1972, in 1947, at my birth in 1919, I know that I never had it made. Next week, we'll talk about the noble experiment. We're now reading from Stacey Abrams' book, Our Time Is Now, beginning chapter one, Everything Old Is New Again. On November 15, 2018, I sat frozen on my living room sofa, the earbuds to my phone still dangling from my ears, but I heard nothing. I just hung up from a call with my campaign manager, Lauren Wargo, and I was numb. The final numbers from the court-mandated count of recovered absentee and provisional ballots had finally come in. In order to force a runoff, we needed nearly 17,000 more votes, but they had not materialized. This call was like several I received in the nine-day interim between Election Day and that evening, but bitter in its finality. Four lawsuits had been filed and the chance for victory hung in the balance for every decision. But now the numbers had been tallied. We'd run an extraordinary campaign that proved our theory that increasingly diverse Georgia had become a democratic leaning state. Early investments in infrequent voters, check. Consistent, authentic, progressive messaging, check. Outreach in multiple languages? Check. Centering the issues of communities of color and marginalized groups typically exiled to the fringes of statewide elections? Check. The results of these efforts on the Democratic side of the ballot had been incredible. We had tripled the, tur- the turnout rate of Latino and Asian American Pacific Islanders. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. Black voters who had reached a peak in voting strength in 2008 in the Obama election had settled back down, and the 2014 election for governor yielded roughly 1.4 million voters total. But in 2018, more than 1.2 million Black voters turned out to cast ballots for me. And the fear that by engaging these groups, my efforts would cost me white votes also proved false. Our election increased white participation for Democrats to 25% overall, higher among suburban white women and college-educated whites of either gender. In contrast to previous recent elections, I received the highest percentage of white votes in a generation. Yet the final tally fell 
723 votes shy of victory or even the legally mandated runoff. My conversation was perfunctory. We discussed the hard truth of the likely outcome and made preparations for the next day. I would announce an end to the campaign. Talk turned to venues for the event and my upcoming speech, but neither of us mentioned the savage edge of sorrow of the result. We had both been preparing ourselves for the outcome since election night. Our strategy had gamed out what could happen from scenario A to Z. We landed squarely in Z, our shorthand for absolute chaos. As more than 50,000 phone calls poured in to our voter hotline from the state over the next 10 days between election and our call, Lauren and I debriefed each night. The routine had become familiar. First, the decision of the day from one of several suits in process. Then the conversation transitioned into the updated vote count. Sometimes in the teens and on exciting days, thousands of reclaimed votes. Our campaign had sent volunteers and staff across Georgia to chase provisional ballots from voters who had stood in line for hours only to be told that they had insufficient identification or some other grievous error or that more troubling, the precinct had run out of real ballots. Lauren and I would strategize about the ongoing fundraising necessary to keep the hundreds of folks in the field and to keep our public service announcements on the air, reminding voters of their rights. Finally, she would alert me to news of the vial, updated stories about how the system had been undermined by the overseer, the Secretary of State, and my opponent, Brian Kemp, ballots rejected for simple mistakes like transposed dates or refusal to put identifying information like birth dates on the outside of an absentee envelope, or like the catastrophe in Pooler, Georgia, where the morning of the election, the lines stretched out of the parking lot and into the dark street at Rockwell Baptist Church. While cars drove past them, voters stood in the fitful rain, in the gutter, waiting in line to cast their ballots. One voter came back to the church three times throughout the day, but the line remained prohibitively long. Another voter who arrived at 5 p.m. with his six-year-old daughter turned back without voting when told that the line would take three hours. There were still 60 people in line at Rothwell at 10.30 p.m. at night. Across town, the under-resourced election workers had no better luck. Voters in Pooler were denied their right to vote when their polling location ran out of provisional ballots. At Pooler Church, one poll watcher witnessed four voters leave without voting because there were no provisional ballots left, despite the federal requirement that all eligible voters be given the option. Another Pooler voter stood in line for three hours only to find out that after years of voting at the same polling place, he had been moved to another location. He was not able to vote at a new location either because it had taken him so long to get to the check-in station that his correct location had already closed. On the evening of the 15th, Lauren's voice typically rapid fire with information and strategy held a careful, solemn tempo. We both knew what was coming, but we still had to say the truth aloud. Our hope had run out. Too many ballots had been trashed or rejected or blocked long before election day. And some county election officials failed to maintain a record of these lost votes. When those potential votes were added to those turned away from the polls or forced away because of long lines, 
and under-resourced precincts, our outrage at the conduct of the election mounted. The bottom line, though, was that the numbers simply did not add up to the 17,000 we need to formally force a runoff. As I digested the update, I understood the next decision to be made. Per my request, our attorneys had prepped two memos for me in the event that we didn't reach the runoff threshold. The first one laid out how to contest the election results based on the evidence we had amassed. The other took a more radical approach, born on the morning after the election, as my key advisors sat with me around a hotel table. Rather than litigate the election results, a potential lawsuit would focus instead on voting infrastructure itself. This approach would do nothing to advance my cause of becoming the 83rd governor of Georgia, but it could transform the election process forever. And lead attorneys Allegra Hardy and Dara Lindenbaum, together with Laura, had deep dived into the possibility. On the call that day, Lauren and I quickly discarded the contest without much discussion. The moment I lodged the challenge, the stories of thousands of individual disenfranchised voters would be overshadowed by one politician's crusade for redemption. But a lawsuit to invalidate the system of laws that permitted a 92-year-old woman to be erased from the polls or that blocked a college freshman from casting their first ballot, that would be an unprecedented case in the 21st century, one worth fighting. The next night, I acknowledged the legal sufficiency of the election results, and honestly, the system worked as manipulated. However, I refused to offer the typical concession to my opponent, not because I intended to subvert the system, as some allege, with false comparisons to Richard Nixon's apocryphal decision in 1960, or Trump's wholly manufactured claim in 2016. My choice came from the lessons learned from my parents and grandparents and a host of civil rights advocates whose lives stood as a testament to the struggle of suffrage. In conceding the election, I would validate the system that slashed voters from the rolls, ensured thousands could not cast ballots, and blocked thousands more from being counted. By making the election about one candidate's fight, I would mask the war that has been waged against millions of voters in Georgia and across the country for centuries. The contours and tactics of voter suppression had changed since the days of Jim Crow. Black codes bore suffragettes, but the mission remained steady and immovable. Keep power concentrated in the hands of the few by disenfranchising the votes of the undesirable. My non-concession speech on November 16, 2018 served as a declaration of intent. We have been taught to expect concessions not only to the outcome of an electoral contest, but to the system that undergirds it. But we forget that the system is not simply constructed for picking politicians. The vast, invasive, and complex electoral system controls everything, from determining the quality of our drinking water, to the lawfulness of abortion rights, to the wages stolen from a domestic worker. The voting system is not just political, it is economic and social and educational. It is omnipresent and omniscient, and it is fallible. Yet when a structure is broken, we are fools if we simply ignore the defect in favor of pretending that our democracy isn't cracking at the seams. Our obligation is to understand where the problem is, find the solution, and make the broken whole again. 
Voter suppression is not a new phenomenon, and truth be told, it isn't entirely partisan. Suppression began before the advent of political parties and became a favorite tool of the party in power. Democrat Republicans, know-nothings, Democrats, and Republicans have all leveraged the power of suppression to win elections and deny votes to the other side. The stripping away of rights comes through racial and sexist animus, incompetence, willful ignorance, and malfeasance. Sometimes these occur all in the same action. Since our nation's inception, the brokers of power have sought to aggregate authority to themselves. At first, that meant old white men who denied a political voice to their wives, to their slaves, to their servants, and to Native Americans to build the commerce and physical structures of the colonies. And then all were conscripted in some fashion into the Revolutionary War. They wrote the Constitution with a grandiose and seductive ideal of freedom at its core, one that embedded hypocrisy in its three-fifths compromise for slavery and the omission of women altogether. But the appeal of freedom and the moments of courage and valor that have made up the American story means we still hold that aspiration today. But we sell the story to other nations without fully confronting the conflict our actions demonstrate to those who look to America as a model of behavior. In order to tell the whole truth, which we must do if we have any chance of moving forward, we must understand how the story of America's democracy yielded so many terrible examples of its complicated promise. Next time we'll be looking at deny and delay. The fight for voting rights never ended. And we do mean never. So, this has been my reading for this evening. I hope that I have uh, shared something that was encouraging, that was thought-provoking, that was positive, that was insightful for you. If you would like to uh, participate in my dialogue, you can type into the comment section, I'm in. As for my listeners by Anchor, I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. Have a wonderful evening and remember to take care and we'll see you on tomorrow for Black Table Talk.